All right, let's dig in. We have a uh, cool study tonight, and um, really neat. study that probably we've been needing for some time. I'm, I'm going to encourage the rest of the body to listen to the recording from tonight. Or it may be the kind of thing that shows up on a Sunday morning. I just feel like it's so important to the journey of faith. I uh, One of the most enabling things for me in the course of, of my walk with the Lord was to realize it's okay to be down in the dumps and realize it's okay, in fact, to feel like you might be praying to the ceiling and reading just a book and feel like God is distant. And um, a guy named John of the Cross discipled me through that. Uh, He lived in 500-something, oh good, 500-something A.D., but uh, he discipled me through his written words on uh, the dark night of the soul and... um, no, but I will. Oh, really? Do you want to share with the body kind of what, what we need to know, should know? Yeah. Um, about 7 o'clock this morning, a student walked into junior high school. Um, and walked into the band hall. The band hall at junior high school has multiple rooms in it, multiple sciences. Uh, he went in there, had an altercation with his girlfriend. So they were having trouble. Um, she left. report if you've seen him said that students witnessed him shooting himself that didn't happen while the principal and the uh, band instructor was, were walking back in the student shot themselves and ended up practicing uh, no one knew what happened because they didn't sound proof but they heard him say he thought something fell over and uh, and so nobody paid attention to it it's when they actually got in there the principal saw what happened immediately cleared the area so that nobody could come in so no students actually saw the body. Um, shortly after that, about 10 minutes, the EMS were there, had the body back, or not the body, threw it back at Presbyterian Hospital in Greenville, and at 8 o'clock he was pronounced dead. Okay. Uh, immediately after that, parents uh, were contacted. Most of, the, most of the students had their cell phones out calling the parents immediately uh, after class began. And Parents started picking up students. Uh, there was also no news that the school was locked down. That didn't happen. The parents just didn't take their students at any time. Uh, we kept students there. A lot of people were concerned why we didn't close the school down. We didn't close the school down because we wanted to make sure the students had somebody to talk with and cope with instead of going home and being by themselves. Um, but at 1 o'clock when we had oh, probably 50% of the student population already home, we went ahead and reached school at 1 o'clock. Went home, um, and school seemed to continue tomorrow as normal, or as normal as it can. I just want to make sure that y'all knew what happened and which portion was actually right. So we can pray for you. Can't believe this student and this judge taking care of laws and things like that. But um, we give this to you for your family. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks, man. Let's pray for GHS, for the staff, the students, the families that um, pray that this dark moment will be an opportunity for Christ to shine. So just pray that the Lord will be working in and through this terrible thing. I also want to pray for a young lady named Jordan. Uh, Stephanie's best friend uh, had a baby last Thursday, has dealt with cancer in the past, and uh, the cancer has returned in her lungs and liver. And uh, apparently... You know, Stephanie, as you would imagine, is not doing real good about that. Kind of deja vu. Close friend, husband. Uh, so let's pray for Stephanie also. Pray for Jordan's family. And pray for healing. And then we'll jump into our study. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, a couple of dark realities that we uh, are facing that to the eyes and to the um, ears seem like uh, just really hopeless times and we confess and profess that uh, in you they're not hopeless and we just pray that you will be um, evident in and and through these issues the the loss of the student at GHS Uh, we just pray for that staff Um, pray that they will rally in this time and that they will turn 
Christward for those of them that, that don't know Christ, that they will maybe even through this death find life. And um, pray for family members and friends that they can, uh, in this moment as they're dealing with grief and loss, consider the how fragile life is and that they uh, will reckon with their souls and with their creator. And I pray that all the time and all the while that you're drawing them to the sun. Uh, Lord, we beg for that. Uh, we pray the same for uh, Jordan and her family that in this dark time of cancer and and uh, suffering uh, mixed with joy and new life that um, we ask for healing for Jordan. We just beg you to to uh, just liberate her from this cancer and uh, give her the opportunity and joy and privilege of raising a child. And Lord, if... Um, if it's your will to take uh, Jordan, we just pray that you, uh, that Jordan knows you and that you've drawn her to the sun. And uh, we pray that Jordan's family is intimately uh, connected with you and walking in you and finding life in you and that in this time that you'll be glorified in and through them. And Lord, we do beg for healing, though. We pray that you'll take the cup from her. And ultimately, we pray with Christ that uh, your will will be done. Uh, we pray that you'll just unpack the word tonight. Uh, you'll give us a... a um, true view of the word and um, that we will see how mysterious you are and how glorious you are and how big your plan is and how um, small and finite we are um, pray that we will appreciate our Bibles more and that we will be more captivated with the truths that you present there but more than anything that we'll be captivated with the giver of those truths and the reality behind them uh, we thank you so much for Christ and his finished work and his cross and his empty tomb Thank you so much for his um, the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb. And we uh, just pray that you will just lead us to enjoy him more, savor him more, chew on him more, uh, be bathed in his blood uh, to whatever extent that we're able and that we're accountable, that as our in terms of our agency that we'll be all there. Thank you so much for your grace and um, for your finished work in the work of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Cody. Did he already take off? Does anybody know how to operate that soundboard there? It can turn me down some. I feel like I'm going to have to whisper it, y'all. And um, Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. While you're turning there, I'm going to share with you what I was saying a moment ago is that one of the most liberating truths for me in, that I was ever discipled on, I was discipled by a dead guy, and that's unfortunate because we've got a bunch of live guys around. I just, uh, as much as I begged for it and ached for it when I was a young married man, I was in a huge church full of mature men, and none of them took the time to invest in me. Uh, but thankfully, we have the written, written uh, accounts from godly men in front of us and um, that have gone on before us. And this man named Dar or John of the Cross uh, introduced me to the concept of a dark night of the soul. Uh, this reality that in the journey of faith that we could become so captivated with the trappings of knowing Christ, the good feelings that we have of our devotional time, the warm feelings of community that we experience in church or in the bride and fellowship and community, the, um, the emotions that sometimes show up, you know, where they just sneak up on you, where you're overwhelmed with just joy inexpressible or tears inexpressible. You don't even really know words behind them. Just a emotion that there comes a point in time in your journey of faith where God takes those things away. Because we become more in love with those things than we do the giver of those things. And the tears and emotions and feelings are creatures. And we are not to love and worship those feelings and, and tears and emotions and experiences. We are to love the giver of those emotions and experiences. So there comes a point in time in your journey of faith where he takes those things away where when you trust that this is still the truth and you trust that when you close your eyes if you close your eyes in prayer which is not necessarily biblical but if if that's what you do which most of us do which is okay that you trust that when you speak that God is hearing you and he make he takes you to a place where I I argue is beyond the warm fuzzies it's kind of like in a relationship in a dating relationship where it's all good and she says your name and your heart skips a beat and and then you get married, and then you move to a new level of love. You thought you loved each other before. You probably lusted after each other before. But now you love each other because it's intentional, and it's in a much deeper way, much deeper relationship than anything you've ever experienced. And it's not based on emotions, not based on feelings. It's based on decision and based on reality that you two are one. 
And the same is true of the journey of faith, where we, God takes those feelings away, and then they show up again. But when they show up, we're not dependent on them. We're grateful for them, but we don't worship them like we might have before the dark night of the soul. That's a long way, a long introduction into what I'm, where we're going tonight is a means study. A study on the, the, the topic of means. M-E-A-N-S. I want to read, I'll have you look with me at a couple of passages and then I'll kind of escort you into where we're going even beyond the little introduction that we looked at so far. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. This study is a nice uh, segment in this two wills of God study. Because it's going to help us understand how sovereignty and agency work together. God's sovereignty and man's agency. Okay? But first I want to look at a couple of passages. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. God says, I will put my spirit within you. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is one of the pictures that we've looked at in these last few weeks of this big sovereign God, the big capital D doer. That in order for us to even obey, he's got to cause us to obey. This picture, I will put my spirit within you. Who's, putting, who's the putter? God's the putter. Who's the receiver? Us. Or in this case, the nation of Israel. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. That in order to obey his statutes, in order to um, observe his ordinances, that he has to create that in us. We can't just grit our teeth and muster up something within us. It's got to be an external event and an external gift that God gives us in order for us to even obey. That's some of the things that we've looked at these last few weeks as we've gotten acquainted with this big, big sovereign God as we become acquainted with this terminology this term that may be new to you the term sovereign you realize that by definition sovereign means that everything that happens either happens with his direct hand or his approval or his permission nothing catches him unawares that if something did then he would no longer be um, a term that may be more familiar to you is omnipotent all-powerful omnipowerful that if something caught him unawares, if something caught him off guard, if there was some sort of dualism between him and Satan, and Satan was winning and God was losing in some way, then he would not be omnipotent, and he wouldn't be sovereign either. So as we, these last few weeks, as we've become in con- and acquainted with this picture of sovereignty, this passage is one that we've considered. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. In case you think it's just an Old Testament thing, in case you think that maybe that was specific to the nation of Israel, and maybe this is not true to the new Israel, maybe things are a little bit more individual now than they were then, maybe this is, he's more concerned about the individual believer. I don't, I'm saying maybe you think those things, I'm not saying I approve of those things, but I'm saying if you think those things and maybe think that God is not so active, that he's not so sovereign now, this side of the cross, Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3. We looked at this last week. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, And this we will do if God permits. Okay, that's cool. What is this? Let's look at this in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hand and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this, what is this we will do? This is that we'll grow up to maturity. And this we will do. We will grow to mature Christians if God permits. That's sovereignty. That we cannot obey, we cannot even grow to maturity unless God grants us that growth. Unless he permits us to grow to that place. Maybe a more familiar passage to you. John chapter 3. These are really just kind of on the tail end 
little pictures, snapshots of God's sovereignty and how we fit into God's sovereignty. These couple of passages that we've looked at just now, John 3, 3, we didn't look at last week, but it's one that kind of fits into this picture that God is the sovereign doer. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, now, he didn't even really respond to what Nicodemus said. He answered to what Nicodemus' heart, what his heart was seeking, not necessarily what his words were saying. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's a more familiar passage to us than maybe this Ezekiel passage and this Hebrews 6 passage, but it's the same picture that we are reborn from above. This picture of being born again, I want you to think about your birth. Remember back in that day, in that hour, when you were delivered? I remember it vividly. What a scary ordeal. But I remember, of course I'm being facetious. The reality is when you are born, you are passive. You're not involved in that. Rebirth is a passive event. God is the bearer. We are the born. We are reborn from above. Okay, that's another picture of God being the sovereign big D doer. Now, I want to ask this question. We can talk about it a little bit. It may be the kind of thing that's hypothetical that you just kind of think about and nobody answers, but somebody may have something on their heart right now that they're thinking and just haven't voiced it, and this question may give you a segue to do that. Has anyone had problems with this big God view has anyone asked the question where and how we fit in that's kind of a silly question because the only response to that is yes or no Um, unless somebody is just really overwhelmed with something to share I just really wanted to escort you into that place where it's okay to ask that question because in this study tonight in the study of means we're going to ask it and we're going to answer it where does human agency fit into this big God view of sovereignty you know i've used this image before of of uh, satellites and that the more satellites you have involved the gps system is not really this illustration that i've got is not perfect because really gps has only used three satellites they either get their three or they don't there may be some more advanced gps's that use more than three but at least the ones i use in the marine corps they had three and if you didn't have the, all three satellites you didn't get a reading it was a, an anchor you throw it overboard because it was useless. But if you got all three, man, it was robust. But it became more and more robust as each satellite is added in. And that image would, would translate here to, if these were only our three satellites, you know, and even if we only use the satellites from the study that we've had the last couple of weeks, where we looked at this big God, this big doer, this big sovereign God, if those were our only satellites, we may see ourselves as completely passive agents completely passive agents waiting to be rousted out y'all ever heard that term before my dad would rouse me out to go deer hunting or duck hunting in the morning about 4 30 in the morning he'd have to rouse me out that's a picture of you're so asleep you're so sacked that you have to pour water on me pull me out by my feet and flop me on the floor i mean that's rousting out the potential is when you see this big god and if you surrender to these, these big sovereign pictures of a, these pictures of a big sovereign God to see ourselves as waiting to be rousted out and mobilized, we may see ourselves as inactive until God overwhelms us, compelling us and propelling us to act. And that we just sit and wait for that to happen. And that faith, you know, we go, okay, if it's not done in faith, then it's sin. So I better not do anything because I'm not really compelled to do anything in faith right now. So I think I'll just hang out. Besides, God's sovereign. (laughs) That's great. That's cool. I kind of like this sovereign thing. The work of faith that we looked at on Sunday and the labor of love. Remember those two words? The work of faith and the labor of love, characteristic of true community. 
would be foreign to this passive mindset. Because if these were our only satellites, and if we just rested on this big sovereign God and didn't see any agency of man, then whenever you see passages like where Paul's saying, I knew you guys were believers because I saw power, I saw the Holy Spirit, and I saw full conviction. And oh, by the way, I'm mindful of your work of faith and your labor of love. You'd read work of faith and labor of love and go, wait a second, God's sovereign. That's not work. It's not a labor if God is sovereign because I should be so compelled and so overwhelmed that it's not work. It kind of carries me along like a ship on the sea with a big sail and he's the wind and I'm just the, the ship. And it's easy. And then if God's in it, it must be easy. You know that thing I addressed on Sunday? There's the potential to view also evangelism through this lens and fail to share because you have no burden. You may be resigned to the thought, or you could be resigned to the thought that God will save who he will save, so why bother? Now, I want to introduce you to some verses that address man's responsibility. Okay, we've looked at just a few verses there, a little few teasers of God's sovereignty, really just to remind us of a big old God. We trust that. Those are satellites. They're in the sky. They're in the Word. We trust them. Now, let's round out our GPS reading, by looking at some passages on man's agency and man's responsibility. Turn to Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. Now, what I want to ask you to do in these next few minutes is just listen to this volley, barrage of verses. Okay, if you're in a place where you have been acquainted with with the concept or picture of means, or if you've kind of sorted out how these, all these things reconcile, hold tight, because we're going to come back to that. Right now, I just want us to visit a series of passages. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. I'm going to start in verse 14, just because I like to start a verse ahead of anywhere I really want to read. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Really, that fits too. That sounds like, hey, you're the agent. Do this, nation of Israel. Fear the Lord. Okay, you're hearing that? Okay, I better fear him. I'm the agent. Joshua said to fear him. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your father served before the river and in, uh, beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord... Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. That is such a familiar passage, okay? That sounds like agency. It sounds like responsibility. Would anybody agree with that or disagree with that? That sounds like Joshua saying, you do this, okay? Anybody agree with that, all right? Next verse, turn to Second Chronicles chapter 30. Second Chronicles chapter 30. Has anybody read this passage recently? The story of Hezekiah rediscovering Passover? Has anybody read about that recently? Listen to this. This is pretty cool. <clears throat> no, more pictures of agency. And now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. They kind of rediscovered it. Hey, let's rediscover the law and go read that. Oh, let's do the Passover like we used to do. Since they could not celebrate it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient numbers, nor had the people been gathered to Jerusalem. Thus the thing was right in the sight of the king and all the assembly. So they established a decree to circulate a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, that they should come to, the celeb- come to celebrate the Passover of the Lord to Lord God at Israel of Israel at Jerusalem, for they had not celebrated it in great numbers as it was prescribed. The couriers then take this decree. They went out through all Israel and Judah with the letters from the hand of the king and his princes, even according to the command of the king, saying, now listen to this. These are conditional statements, or what sound like conditional statements. Okay? If you're a circler, an underliner, I'll share with you what I I circled. I started underlining right here. 
O sons of Israel, I circled return, return being the verb, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then I also circled that, so that. It's kind of a conditional statement. Return so that he may return to those of you who escaped and are left from the hand of the kings of Assyria. So return to him so that he will return to you. Okay, that's conditional statement number one. That sounds like agency. Okay, here's another one. Verse 7. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were unfaithful. I circled unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers so that, I circled so that, he made them a horror as you see. That's the next conditional statement or what seems like that. Don't be like your daddies so that you won't be a horror like they were. Okay, here's a, here's a third of what seems to be a conditional statement in verse 8. Now do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he's consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God that, that so this, the verb would be serve, serve the Lord your God that, or so that, his burning anger may turn away from you. Okay, serve the Lord so that his anger um, turns away. Okay, the next conditional statement. This is an if-then statement. Remember those in science? If-then statement. That's about the only thing I learned in science. (laughs) For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. Sounds like agency. Return to the Lord that, or so that, his compassion will return to you. And that God will not turn his face away from you. Okay? Those are more pictures of what seem to be agency. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to come back to that chapter later on. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Again, we're looking at a sampling, a barrage, a volley of satellites to add into our current satellites to help us understand how agency may fit with sovereignty. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That sounds like you're, you're an agent in that. Walk in a manner worthy of the of, of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility, with gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The focus of that being walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now we're going to turn real fast to a few other New Testament passages. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a series of worthy passages here. Live worthy of the gospel. Essentially what it's saying. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And this one, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The next one is Colossians, the next chapter, or the next book. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. For this, I'm going to start in verse 9, because again, I like to start a verse ahead. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Okay? Here's the next passage. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And then the last passage in this volley, Revelation chapter 3, verse 4. This is the letter to the church at Sardis. This is uh, sleeping Sardis. Essentially what they were doing. He's saying, you're asleep, you need to wake up. And then in verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Essentially, they have not sinned in the way that the rest of you have. They haven't soiled their garments. So the result of that, what seems to be a 
an if-then statement. If you don't soil your garments, then this is what happens. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Sounds like agency, doesn't it? Sounds like agency. Now, these passages, if you had a sky full of these satellites alone, and if we didn't have a sky full of our sovereignty satellites, there would be the potential for this religion or this faith, this Christianity, to look a lot like a performance faith. Would you agree with that? If all you'd ever been taught is the, are the verses that we just read, these if-then statements, if you do this, then God will do this, there would be the potential for all of us to go, man, I better do this or I'm going to hell. I'm, I can't please God if I don't do this. They sound like we have tremendous, tremendous agency and responsibility. They sound more like a logical understanding of faith. If the sky were only full of those, they would sound like a real logical understanding. Our minds could conjure that up. Our minds could agree to that. That makes sense. You're going to do this for me if I do this for you. Okay. Now, now I want to introduce you to some passages that show how God's sovereignty fits with man's agency. How they work together. This is, this is so cool. I mean, this is just going to so motivate y'all. That's going to so set you free. All right, I'm excited. I'm so excited for you. Turn back to 2 Chronicles. 2 <clears throat> Chronicles, chapter 30. For all of y'all that were paying attention, we just went there. We just read about Hezekiah rediscovering the Passover um, and saying, hey, let's do that. Sending out a decree. He sends out messengers into all the land and they go out there and they have these points. Remember verse 6, return to the Lord that he may return to you. Verse 7, don't be like your daddy and brothers so that he made because he made them a horror. And then the third one, verse 8, don't stiffen your neck that his burning anger may turn away. And then verse 9, if you return to the Lord, then your brothers will find compassion if you return to him. Remember those conditional statements? And then consider the response. If we continued on in verse 10, let's look at the response of the people. So the couriers passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Now, thankfully, it wasn't everybody. But you get the impression, since it's listed first, that this may have been the majority. It just kind of seems that way to me. Like the majority response was, ha, ha. Passover, Padua, that's what I do with the kids. Anything, something stupid, I go, whatever, Padua. Ah, give me a break, Passover, how silly. They laughed him to scorn. Verse 11, nevertheless, some men of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And here's where it all comes together, right here in verse 12. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Do you see sovereignty and agency coming together right there? Who caused who to obey what the king commanded? God call, caused them to obey. They laughed was the almost the universal response. And then in verse 12, if you want to see how they all fit together, the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord, God caused them to obey. What seems to be a bunch of conditional statements. If you don't do this, then this won't happen. If you do do this, then this will happen. And yet we see here how it all comes together. God caused them to do this so this would happen. God caused Judah that their hearts would turn Godward. So they, their, their hearts turned Godward. Guess what? That's how it fits together. Human agency is somehow embedded within God's sovereignty. They're not mutually exclusive. Someone asked uh, Spurgeon how he felt about God's sovereignty and man's free will and, and how he differentiated bet between the two. And he said, I don't have to. They're friends. I don't have to, to break them apart. They're friends. They fit together. How does human agency and free will fit within God's sovereignty? I don't know how it does. I just know it does. There's one example. Now, here are a few more. Colossians 
chapter 1, verse 29. That's a picture of means. Okay? Colossians chapter 1, you're going to see means develop in a more clear, crystal clear picture here in these next few verses. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul is writing to the church here. He says, um, for this purpose, I also labor. Okay, that would be our first list of verses. If you do this, then this will happen. Turn this way and God won't, won't do this. Or turn this way and God will return to you. It would be our first list of verses that, that look like big agency not our first verse, those are sovereignty, but our second list. The barrage, remember the volley? Paul says, for this reason I also labor. Striving, okay? That word fits there too. Striving according to, uh-oh, here it comes. His power, which mightily works within me. You see how those things fit together? You see agency and sovereignty fitting together in one verse, in one man, in his mindset? I'm going to strive, I'm going to labor while God's work and power is working within me. Who's the doer? Who's the real big D doer? God is. God is the true big A agent. I mean, there's some level of agency there because Paul says, I labor, I strive. And it's according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now look at Philippians. There's a couple of great pictures in Philippians. I mean, when you want to talk about how human agency and God's sovereignty work together, there's two series of passages here that will just blow you away. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, that, that fits with our barrage and our volley of man's agency verses. Would you agree? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With all our conditional statements, our if-then statements. If you do this, then this will happen. Then this will happen. Okay, that, so far, that fits. If, if all you ever had was a Bible that said these sort of things in here, it would be a works-based religion. It would be a works-based faith. But then there's the next verse. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who's the real worker? Yes. We both are. But who's really at work? God is. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? You just see us, man. Oh, I'm really going gonna to strive. I'm going to be involved in the work of faith and the labor of love. Because, you know, it's the right thing to do. He tells me to do that. Choose you this day whom you'll serve. You know, if you turn to me, turn back to me, my heart will turn to you. I see all those things. I'm going to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that beautiful? I hope that ministers to you. I hope that as you think about fear and trembling and you think about, man, I want to strive. I do want to labor. I do want to be involved in the work of faith and the labor of love. I want to be involved in all those things. And, oh, I fail so miserably. And thankfully, the big agent, the true agent, is at work in me to will and to work. And what it should do, if anything, is to turn you Godward and say, Lord, give me the fuel and the resources to go do that. Your prayer life should just change it shouldn't be, Lord, bless what I'm doing. It's, Lord, show me what you're blessing so I can go do it and be right, streamlined right in the middle of it. Look at this next, next one right here in Philippians also. Philippians chapter 3. This is one of my favorite series of passages, and it's, it's a really cool picture of uh, means. Paul goes through kind of a catalog of virtue. You know, Jew among Jews, you may have read this passage before, you know, taught by Gamaliel. He went to like the Harvard of Judaism. I mean, he was the man. You know, he had a catalog of virtue. And in verse 8, he says, or in verse 7, you know, because how I like to start a verse earlier. But whatever things were gained to me, those things, all that catalog of virtue, if that was gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered and loss of all things and gain and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in, in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Essentially what he's saying is, thankfully, that volley, my performance in the volley is not what determines whether I'm in fellowship with the Lord or not. He's saying, I count my performance in the volley as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He's pointing to Christ's finished work. Listen to what he says. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed in his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've obtained it already or have already become perfect, but now listen to this. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I'm going to press on. I'm going to work out my salvation with fear and trembling to lay hold of that which is already laid hold of me. For it's God who works in me to will and to work. You see how, mean, how means fits together in that passage? Paul says, I'm going to work as if it's almost like as if it's up to me. I'm going to press on to lay hold of that thing which is already laid hold of me. You see that? Did you say, uh, Some of y'all were looking down at your Bible. You're trying to get this. Look at what this image I'm looking at or this with my fist where, where Paul's saying, I'm going to lay hold. I'm going to press on to lay hold of this thing that has already laid hold of me. He's trying to grab hold of something that has already grabbed him. That's means. How does human agency fits in? It's pressing. It's pursuing. It's clinging. It's hungering. It's trying to lay hold of something that's already laid hold of it. That ought to be liberating for you. Not liberating to sit back on flowery beds of ease, but liberating and knowing, thank you that he's truly the big D doer. Thank you that he's the big A agent. Thank you that he is the one that's truly sovereign. And it should turn your prayer life upward where we go, okay, okay. He, since he's really sovereign, and I see that he is the ultimate doer, I'm going to turn toward him for my fuel in pressing on and in laying hold of and in working out. He is my very nourishment in that. Right, you can't, you can't press on without him. No. Well... And well, there's something in you though also that is seeking that appetite. Right? It's a true desire. Yeah, it's but weird. If you're thinking that God is sovereign, then it's not then it's not true desire. It is full on true desire, but because God gave me an appetite, mm-hmm. I truly desire that. We, we have to be careful not to go to the place where I was going Sunday morning where I said that the labor of love, that that we think if it's love, then it must be easy. How many young teenagers have gone down that path and gotten married at the age of 18? It's easy, Mom. I mean, we just, it's like peas and carrots. And then they get married and they go, oh, it's not easy. True love is not easy. And it's, and neither is the journey of faith. It's a labor. That's how Paul could say it's a labor of love. And yet he gives us the ability to labor at it. It's weird. We're working at it, yet he's putting our hand to the work. And putting our heart into the work. He's, he's ultimately the agent behind it. Well, he's sovereign in the, the deposit and seal of the Holy Spirit also. Yeah, he's... I, I'm, I, don't, I don't see how, the, how those would be separate necessarily. You may be thinking transcendence. Are you saying that God is transcendent? That you see this God that's distant, but yet he gives us this Holy Spirit near? Okay, I'm trying to figure out exactly what you're, what you're wrestling with then. 
<laughs> That's good. Listen, means is not something that you understand in an hour. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We can't muster the. Um, I'm not sure if this is connected to where y'all are going, but we can't muster these things. They have to just like being reborn from above. You can't muster a baby. Can't. I'm going to be born today. You know, it's this whole force that's coming together in mommy and with God at work and God is the agent there. And, and the same would be true here. We cannot force and create and grit our teeth and muster up a pursuit of the Lord. Yet at the same time, we do set our face like flint and pursue the Lord. But just the setting the face and just the pursuit is a gift from God. Exactly. You cannot seek God on your own. God gives you the ability to seek God. He gives you the desire to seek Him. And then once he, he's, he's being sought, he, gives, he reveals Himself in the seeking. I mean, He's sovereign. He's the big doer in every part of it. Not in some parts, not in most parts, but in every part. And yet our agency is still, we still see clear pictures of agency that fits in there embedded within sovereignty. Not like in a compartmental way, just in a, they're synthesized somehow. And yet his sovereignty is not compromised. And we're not robots. I don't, I don't know how it works. I just know it works. I see evidence passage after passage. We've got two more we're going to look at here in a moment. Where you see them fitting together and working together. Yeah, I, I, the, the difference that I would see there is I wouldn't see a percentage of work. Like I've got 8% and he's got 92%. He's got 100% of it. And yet somehow I'm an agent in there and responsible. I don't know how that works. I just know it works. Uh, you know, I can't systematize it. And you shouldn't. You don't have to. We can just trust that it works. It's a trusting pursuit. I'm going to have to think on that some more because I'm still not tracking with y'all. But I, I, I'm, I may be able to get there. <laughs> I mean, with, with talking about it.
while we hold the hose and we think we're watering. <laughs> I've, I've got some illustrations for you here in a minute that I think will help show you how they kind of fit together. Let me share two more passages with you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. I sat in on a Hebrew study one day uh, over at the Treddy's house, and um, the, the interesting way this passage is fit together, the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, just stood out to me as another example of means. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This passage is really talking about Christ being our Sabbath rest. As you, as you hear me reading this word Sabbath, don't see Saturday, but we think of Sabbath as Sunday. Sabbath is really Saturday, but don't, don't, don't think of a day of the week. This is about Christ being our Sabbath rest. Okay, He's the focus of this passage. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, that's the rest of God, that Sabbath rest, has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. So it's basically saying, we rest from our works. Now, that, that would be one that would be in our, our last list. like Not the volley, because it's saying we rest from our works. But listen to what it says next. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Who has the ESV? What is it? Uh-oh. Strive to enter his rest? That's means. It's work. It's hard work to labor. Labor of love is work. It's labor. It's a fight to rest in Christ because the world is screaming at us in every direction. Our flesh is, 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 is game with the world. The world is feeding our flesh ammunition and it's making war with our soul every day, all day long. So it's fight to rest in Christ. And we strive to enter his rest. That's means. That's the fight. That's the work of faith is striving to enter his rest. That's how they fit together. Here's, here's one more picture. And then I want to share with you a couple of illustrations. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm counseling about three different couples through Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And it, it is just such a um, robust 10 verses because it's the whole gospel. Or it just does such a nice job of bringing in the appropriate satellites to summarize a robust understanding of the gospel. You understand what I'm saying? That it, it, some pictures of the gospel may just be one satellite that kind of gives you, well, that's not the whole story. This is a great picture summarizing the whole story, these 10 verses. And it's a picture of means. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Excuse me. And for, and I'm, I learned it from... Uh, no, excuse me. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the de desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Okay, that's our condition before Christ, before salvation. Okay? And then in verse 4, my two favorite words in the Bible, but God. Thankfully, he didn't leave us dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. Who bore who? God bore us. We were, that's a picture of us being born again. He made us alive. He made us alive. Don't get it wrong. We didn't birth ourselves. We didn't make ourselves alive. We didn't muster life. He made us alive. How? Together with Christ. When Christ vacated that tomb on that dewy Sunday morning, we walked out with him because he grabbed our dead carcasses and corpse and pulled us out with him and gave us life, quickened us. He was the giver of life. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him. Not only did he give us life, he gave us honor, a place of honor. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do that? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So how do works fit in? This salvation was not due to works. It was not due to that first list. 
It was not due to that volley and barrage that, yes, you're commanded and directed to do those things, but your salvation was not because of that. It was because of grace that you've been saved through faith. And even that's not of yourselves. And where does works fit in? Here's where it fits in in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's how the whole thing fits together. God is the big D doer. We're dead in our sin and we're made alive. And where does our agency fit in? It fits in now in some way that now that he's made us alive, now we can go do alive things. (laughs) Now we can go do what living people do, good things, things that we were created to do. And even those things he still creates in us and they were created beforehand for us to go do and for us to go walk in them. How does it all fit together? Man, it's a mystery. Here's a couple of illustrations I'll leave with you. Evangelism. The thing that I hear most often is, why should we share our faith? If God's sovereign, if he elects, if he foreknows, if he ordains, if he appoints, if he, if he draws, you know, why should we bother sharing our faith? I took Luke um, fishing a couple years ago. I've shared this illustration before because to me, it's just a way to, in, to envision how this works. I took Luke fishing, and um, I've been fishing ever since I was a kid. I don't need my, at that time, five-year-old to go fishing to catch fish. I can catch fish by myself all day long. But Luke and I sat out on my dad's dock in uh, this little place in Louisiana, and we sat out there, and, and I baited his hook, and I reached around him, and I grabbed the pole, and we, he held, held the pole with me, and we put that cork with that worm out there in the water, and we started pulling in the brim one at a time, man, pulling them in, catching them. And every time, Luke is going, I caught another. I caught another one. Look at there. I caught another one. Hey, Daddy, let me catch another one. Okay. Here, let me bait your hook. Let me put it in the water. Let me help you hold it out there. Oh, I caught another one. Who's the big D-doer? Man, I was. I was the man. But it, it was about the relationship. I wanted to spend time with my son. Did I need him to catch fish? No, sir. No, I could have got another fisherman, or I could have caught him myself. But I brought him in on it because I wanted him to be an instrument in that because I wanted to fellowship with him and engage with him in that event. I made him a fisherman, yeah, yeah. But ultimately, I was the one catching it. That's, that's the way to envision it. That's the way to see those things coming together. See, God as the fisherman and yourself as the instrument. That's the way evangelism works in terms of agency. Exactly. Look at Dad. Well, what a what a dad. <laughs> My daddy sure can't catch some fish. Philippians chapter three. I'm gonna show you one more image. Man, I got. If y'all let me go, about two more minutes. <clears throat> it's shutting down time right now, but this is. I I feel I can give us some closure here in the next couple minutes. This passage I just read. From the guy who had this catalog of virtue, from the guy who would be Christian extraordinaire, I mean, church planter extraordinaire, shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, enslaved. I mean, this guy had a catalog like a resume of the faith like none of us could even touch. Here's what he says in verse 8. Listen to this, these words again. Because I'm going to introduce you to a verb that's going to blow your mind when you really think about who this is coming from. More than that, I count all these things to be lost, all this catalog of virtue to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count all these things, poop, is what that word is in the original language, scubula. It's really worse than that. It's kind of almost a curse word in Greek. Paul's serious about this. All that catalog of virtue, man, that, that stuff is trash. Compared to, and compared to this, so that I may gain Christ. You hear that word may? I don't hear may in most Christians. I don't hear may in the majority of my journey of faith. Hey man, once saved, always saved. Flowery beds of ease, man. I prayed my prayer. I got it written in the front of my Bible. Me and God, we're square. Yet I'm hearing the church planter, apostle, stony, shipwreck-y, prison-er, 
saying that I may gain Christ and that I may. These are called subjunctives in the Greek, and they mean they hadn't happened yet. That I may be found in him. What? Come on, Paul. If you're not in him, nobody's in him. Sit back on flowery beds of ease. You got it going on? But you hear a guy that's striving and working that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in, in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him. <laughs> and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And then the next word in the original language, where it says in order that, in the original language it actually says, if perhaps, if perhaps I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Dude, does that just blow your mind? Not that I have already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I, that's, that, this is the heart behind pressing on. He hadn't arrived. It's the same guy that said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He hadn't arrived. He's got subjunctives all over the place. Is he assured? He's assured as he's clinging to Christ. Here, here's what he says. That my righteousness of my own is not derived from the law, but from which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's what he's striving for. That's what he's working in, is faith in Christ. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Yeah. Right. If perhaps. These sort of realities should make a more desperate believer. What do you mean? Uh, what's that? No, we can't blame sovereignty for disobedience. God didn't craft disobedience. If I were to go sin tomorrow, he wouldn't craft that. He's not the author of it, but he may allow it. He's still sovereign, but I can't rest on that sovereignty because I'm supposed to be pressing on and laying hold of. I'm supposed to be working out my salvation with fear and trembling. I can't lean back on that sovereignty flowery beds of ease. I can't lean back on that very first list. I really should spend my time in that second list all the while trusting that it's him who works in me to will and to work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We like to validate our faith. We are prone to validating our faith. Let me, I said this in a message, didn't really develop it the other day. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss. Because those validate faith for people. Where does that come from? I mean, I understand why, why, how we could gravitate in that direction. But we're prone to, to validating our faith somehow. And really our faith, assurance comes from placing our faith daily and desperately in the person and finished work of Christ. That's, how our, that's where assurance comes from. Not that maybe I've quit cussing. Have you? Great. There are lots of people that cu stop cussing that are probably going to go to hell. There may be people, people that don't drink that may be in hell someday. That, that we, we're so prone to validating, but we need to work trusting all the while that he's the big D doer. And instead of putting us in a place of, oh, why bother? He's sovereign. He's going to get it done anyway. It should put us in a place of freedom. Share our faith with reckless abandon. We can't scare anybody away from God because if they're his sheep, they're going to go, oh, there's the shepherd's voice. Or they're going to go, that smells good. That's a sweet aroma. And we work. We work hard trusting and knowing that now instead of uh, being driven by man and my performance and my abilities, it's by his work and his power. So I don't know if that helps any, but uh, in terms of loving Christ, we labor in love. We fight to enter his rest. In terms of agency, Romans chapter 1 is a great verse to look at. Men are without excuse. Yes, men are agents. 
We're not robots in this. Um, men are without excuse, and God gave them over to the lusts of their flesh. Um, obedience, Joshua to the nation of Israel, his command, his preaching to the nation of Israel is the same preaching that I, essentially, that I share every week. Choose you this day whom you'll, you'll serve. Press on to lay hold of God's people, because he's already laid hold of you. That's the content of preaching. Obey him, since he's drawn you. And our, this should change our prayer. Incline our hearts to your testimonies should be our prayer. Incline our hearts to your testimonies because my, my heart on its own can't incline in that direction. You've got to tip me Godward. Incline my hearts to your testimony. Psalm 119, verse 36. Open the eyes of my heart that are open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. You open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. That's Psalm 119, verse 18. And that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. He's the enlightener. He's the one that opens our eyes. This should really, really change your prayer life when you begin to get acquainted with the picture of means. It should free you up to work hard and all the while work with a deep trust in knowing that God is God. And that He's sovereign. He's the big D doer. And He's on His throne. Hopefully, this, um, if this has given you some questions that you might have, or thoughts, man, let's chew on it. Um, it's a study that's, that's developed for me over the course of a few years of seeing passages kind of fit together and, and um, say, wait a second, these work together. You know, they're not, like Spurgeon said, they're, they're not uh, enemies, they're friends. I don't have to, to talk about how they compete because they work together. Somehow our agency and our will fits within God's sovereignty. Let me pray. I apologize. For, I went a few minutes over tonight. I'll dismiss you all. God, we're thankful for this, um, this time in the Word. We're thankful for this picture that you are ultimately the doer. And um, Lord, I pray that you'll find us as a result of that and recognizing that you're the doer, that you'll find us uh, hard at work and striving in the work of faith and the labor of love, that you'll find us pressing on to lay hold of that which is laid hold of us, that you'll find us working out our salvation with fear and trembling, that you'll find us involved in the if-then statements and turning our hearts and our affections toward you. And Lord, in all those things, we recognize that you are the one that gives us one heart. You're the one that, that is at the willing and the working one in us. Um, Lord, we recognize that you are the ultimate doer. And um, so that, as we pray right now, just closing this Bible study, I just pray that you will give us an appreciation of that and give us an understanding of how we fit in. We love you so much, Lord. We thank you for Christ. It's by his work and in his finished work that um, we're able to even pray tonight. Amen. Thanks, y'all.